This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third and final episode discussing the great Anglo-Saxon poem, Beowulf. In episode one, we began our three-part series by talking about how much is not known about the poet, not known about the era, or most of the historical or perhaps mythical allusions that are referenced in the work itself. Um, these are just the beginning reasons for why there exists so much disagreement in how the poem should be interpreted um, and understood. And as we discuss the final scenes of the poem, we see the ending is perhaps even more ambiguous than the beginning. <laughs> you know, just to recall, the opening scene is that of a burial. It's the burial of the king of the Spear Danes, Shield Sheafson, as he is called by Seamus Haney, the translation we've uh, used in all three episodes and uh, you mentioned that you'd wanted to change up translations but then changed your mind what's your thoughts on that (laughs) i know you know changing translations would just be confusing there there's so many good ones you know we've been using the seamus haney's translation because it's easier maybe to read it's more lyrical the tolkien translation i think most people think it's the closest to the original the one that's in uh, our textbooks, at least here in the United States, is a different one, the Burton Raffle translation. It's really graphic, which is fun to read. <laughs> but, Gary, this is a digression. Oh, yes. And if you're reading or have read Beowulf, you know all about those digressions. Um, it's when you're telling a story, but then you deviate from the main storyline to go in a different direction for a bit before circling back to the main story and You know, the digressions in this poem can be frustrating and maybe even annoying for people that are used to straightforward narratives. You know, I get accused often of going off on digression. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. Uh, But, you know, I won't disagree with you there. It's a real handicap when you're trying to read the main story and then they have these side stories and you're not familiar with the people that they're talking about and you're not, you don't know the story they're referencing and yes, today, at the end of the poem has even more digressions than we've referenced before. Well, in episode two, uh, we discussed the two fights. The one with Grendel, where Beowulf defeats his opponent 
by pulling out Grendel's arm and shoulder and hanging it up on the hall while the uh, monster ret- retreats to his mirror only to die. But there's a second monster, which is Grendel's mother, who comes to Herat to avenge her son's death. And Beowulf descends into a lake filled with monsters, and he almost dies. In fact, he only survives by miraculously killing Grendel's mother with a sword that he found down there. We talked a lot about J.R.R. Tolkien, and, and he argued that the monsters are the heart of the poem. And they are the heart of our second episode. The monsters personify evil, and, and Beowulf is a hero confronting straightforward, undisputed evil. And how does one fight a monster? Well, the poet of Beowulf suggests to fight a monster, you must be a monster. This does not mean you should compromise your morality, uh, not a monster in that sense, but to heroically stand in the face of evil with equal force, courageously standing in the face of evil as if you were a monster combating it, staring at it, pursuing it. That's heroism. And don't forget, we also contrasted male and female aggression, which was fun, and how they expressed themselves very differently. And we talked about the archetypes, those um, ancient symbols or psychological um, you know, expressions of human patterns of behaviors and thoughts. And uh, we highlighted how the poet uh, merges the archetype of water, which symbolizes chaos, with the archetype of the underworld, those dark uh, moments of human existence. And Beowulf descends into a watery hell where the poet paints a picture of the really the most horrific creatures imaginable. And Beowulf almost dies, which of course is, in some sense, the definition of going to hell, but he doesn't. He emerges, and in he, like anyone who descends into the underworld, emerges changed. No one goes to the underworld and comes back the same. I mean, not in literature and not in real life. And sometimes people go to the underworld and they don't come back at all. But if they do, they are changed. And in very much the same way, we see Beowulf emerging. Um, the experience of facing Hades or death of the underworld really ennobles a person. And uh, this is what we see in Beowulf. He emerges more noble. He's a gift giver. And that is the trait of a king. Well, you just used an Anglo-Saxon kinning, which we learn means two words that are smashed together to create this metaphorical definition of a new word. And the Anglo-Saxon kinning for king is ring giver. Yeah, we talked about kinnings, but uh, one thing we didn't mention is that we will still use them in English today. I mean, for example... How about the term tree hugger? I mean, that's a kinning that we use for environmentally conscious people. And a fender bender, I mean, that's one we use for a car accident. I mean, we we think of them as being strange and Beowulf because we're unfamiliar with these, but we do use them and even in our parlance from time to time. I know. And I was thinking about maybe we should just sit around and and make up a bunch of new ones all the time. Okay, that's a, that's a whole episode. A podcaster, a microphone talker, or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but they do enhance meaning. I mean, this metaphor, the one ring giver, it embodies a distinguishing characteristic of Anglo-Saxon leadership, and perhaps leadership in general. The mindset of giving gifts as an expression of leadership. I mean, many people walk through life looking through the lens of what's in it for me, What can I get out of other people? What can I get out of my subordinates? How can I squeeze the advantage out of this relationship? 
But that is not the image of leadership here. A king, as opposed to just someone in charge, flips the paradigm. A good king thinks in terms of what can I give? How can I ennoble my thanes? How can I bestow my rings? It's not just giving for the sake of indulging. It's giving for the sake of ennobling. And you know, not every person with power is a king. Some people with power are monsters. Others are dragons. Others are just things. The difference between a person with power and a king is the mindset. And in the beginning, Beowulf isn't a king. He's fighting for himself, for glory. And in his first encounter with Grendel, it's interesting that the poet highlights that he watches a fellow Thane die, apparently, you know, when he could have intervened, before he himself engages Grendel. But here onward, we will not see that kind of thing again. The poet describes Beowulf in different terms. He's still strong. He's still courageous. But now he is a ring giver. He gets great wealth. But what does he do with it? He gives. He builds. He builds meat halls. He builds alliances. He builds peace. Beowulf emerges from the underground, and before leaving the Danes, we see him start. He gives three gifts. He gives Unferth his sword back. He gives Rothgar the hilt of the sword he used to kill Grendel's mom. And he gives a gift to the guy who'd been watching the ship while he's been off fighting the monsters. Before Beowulf leaves, Hrothgar, in his speech, says this. What you have done is to draw two peoples, the Geat nation and us neighboring Danes, into shared peace and a pact of friendship in spite of hatreds that we have harbored in the past. For as long as I rule, this far-flung land treasures will change hands and each side will treat the other with gifts. Across the Gannon's bath over the broad sea, world prowls will bring presents and tokens. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on gifts in that little short passage. And so um, I guess now we're finally ready to jump back into the narrative. Um, after Beowulf returns to Geatland, the poet jumps 50 years into the future. Uh, we do read some snippets about a few things that happened during that time. But that is in, really in the digressions towards the end. And uh, when he picks up the narrative, he's been a king for 50 years, which I noticed this is not the first time we saw this number in the story. And I think that's the number of years Rothgar ruled before Grendel attacked. Um, you know, in fact, there are several numbers that reoccur in obvious ways, not just the number 50. And the number three is also a big deal. Uh, there's a lot that occurs in threes, three monsters, three gifts. We're going to see this episode, Three Attacks by the Dragon. Uh, those are three examples, <laughs> but there are many, many, many. I use three minis right there. Uh, <laughs> more things that line up like that. You know, we have to assume that this is intentional. I mean, the author is a Christian monk, and, and he's highly educated, uh, and they're aware of numbers. The reoccurring numbers create connections. The numbers also create a sense of balance that pervades the poem and goes well with the other literary elements and what they're doing. For example, there's great balance in the two good kings who both reign 50 years. One's a Dane, one's a Geat. There's a balance between two good queens and there's their evil counterparts, one being a literal monster. But it's not just in three or two. The number four is also important. We're going to see four funerals. Beowulf uses four swords. The number 12 is used a lot. And as we get into the second part of the poem, 
these numbers are going to continue to stand out. But one more thing that stands out, especially as we read these kingly speeches and see all these gifts, is the reliance, and it becomes more obvious the farther you get into the poem, of the utter importance of armor. I mean, there is so much talk about shields and mails and swords. You can't get over it. And as we make our way to the end of the story, we see that the emphasis on this armor, this increased emphasis on the war stories that are in the digressions from the past, create a complexity of what the poet may be trying to say. And we can understand a little bit more of that by just thinking specifically about the swords. You know, of course, um, armor is really about violence. And although there is a lot of violence associated with the monsters, I mean, the monsters are not the only source of the violence. And uh, beyond violence with monsters, there's violence between men, you know, the Danes versus the Geats versus the Swedes. And in fact, uh, violence is always present. It goes beyond facing monsters and killing a dragon. You know, and in this sense, uh, Beowulf fails to bring peace to the world. I'm true. And when Beowulf arrives back at Geatland, he's received by King Higelac, and the king asks for a full report of his adventure. He admits that he never wanted Beowulf to leave to begin with. But then we get into this digression where Beowulf talks about the challenges of bringing peace to warring peoples, even with the exceptionally gifted peace-weaving queens. He tells a story of a Danish warrior who wears a sword, giving to him a trophy that he'd won in battle. And for this thing, that sword is an heirloom. It's an expression of his father's love and his accomplishments as a warrior that were passed down. However, as he enters into the Mead Hall, there's another thane who sees that sword and he recognizes that it was his father's, but he was the one that it was taken from their family in battle. And so for him, that same sword represents his father's death, his father's defeat, a symbol of shame. So we can see how complicated of a symbol just that symbol of the sword is. You know, the reason why I told the story, uh, perhaps... What does this mean? What would this mean in real life? The way of life of this ancient world the poet describes is, you know, impossibly violent and just ferociously savage, savage and malevolent. And, you know, the poet often focuses on the bloodiness of it all and uh, the sword striking the helmet, the male protecting the heart. And for the time period, um, these are sophisticated technologies and they're, you know, products really of human skill passed down from generation to generation and uh, swords and shields are also objects of art of beauty and this poem emphasizes this too and except that they are pieces of art focused on uh, perpetuating bestial violence <laughs> i mean you know this is not an artistic invention of the poet and this is actual history uh, many european medieval museums feature these i mean it's subtle and the weapons are not the focus of the story the monsters are but the weapons are everywhere, and there's just so much violence in the story. If you divide the poem in two parts, you know, part one would be the part from line one to line 2,200. This is the part where Beowulf is a young man. But then you get to part two. That's the part where Beowulf is old, 50 years after his visit to Herat. The transition between these two parts is highlighted. Again, you've said that word multiple times, but you just can't get away with it with violence. Beowulf is not supposed to be king. Hygelac has a son. His name is Herdred, but both Hygelac and Herdred are killed in battle. 
When Beowulf retells the story of how they're killed, he emphasizes the role of the sword. He expands on other violent deaths, too, of other Geetish kings. I mean, this inherent violence emerges more predominantly as the story closes. And we see featured three kinds of violences paralleled in Beowulf as a whole. You know, there's this violence that's associated with the natural or even the supernatural world. The violence of nature. There's a lot of sea monsters. The dragon would be this kind of violence. But then there's this second violence, this violence of evil men. That's expressed by the monsters. These are men who are undeniably evil. But now, towards the end of the story, we're going to see this third kind of violence kind of highlighted. The high, the you know, the, the human violence, I guess we could call it. One that's embedded in this heroic, ordered society. And this is violence that expressed through all these weapons, the swords, the shields, the helmets. A lot of them are beautiful. But by beautiful, I mean they have markings of civilization. So let's read just the short transition paragraph between the first section from when Beowulf is a young guy to the second section. A lot was to happen in later days in the fury of battle. Hagelik fell and shelter of Herdred's shield proved useless against the fierce aggression of the Shiflings. Ruthless swordsmen, seasoned campaigners, they came against him and his conquering nation and with cruel force cut him down, so that afterwards the wide kingdom reverted to Beowulf. He ruled it well for fifty winters, grew old and wise as warden of the land. There are quite a few flashbacks that would highlight you know, Beowulf's career as a thane, but then as a king. But in the transition, Beowulf has become noble, he's become prosperous, he's become generous, but what he has not become is less violent. The society itself is violent, and his 50 winters as king were victorious, but not free from this. The poet never lets us forget this unchanging reality. You know, one question that looms um, is the poet's insistence that uh, Beowulf's weapons never seem to work very well against the monsters. I mean, he fights Grendel with his hands. Unferth, the unfailing sword of the Danes, does not work against Grendel's mother. Uh, in fact, the sword he does use to kill her isn't one from the world of men. It's kind of a magical sword. But now in his third encounter with the dragon, his sword literally breaks. I know, and it makes it difficult to understand because there's no neat and simple explanation. Um, let's read the part of the story where a slave accidentally brings havoc on the Geats by stealing a goblet from a dragon who happens to be sitting on a whole hoard of treasure, gold, and of course, as you might imagine, lots of weapons. Until one began to dominate the dark, a dragon on the prowl from the steep vaults of a stone roof barrow where he guarded a horde. There was a hidden passage, unknown to men, but someone managed to enter by it and interfere with the heathen trove. He had handled and removed a gem-studded goblet. It gained him nothing, though with a thief's wiles he had outwitted the sleeping dragon that drove him into rage, as the people of the country would soon discover." The intruder who broached the dragon's treasure and moved him to wrath had never meant to. It was desperation on the part of a slave. 
fleeing the heavy hand of some master guilt-ridden and on the run, going to ground, but he soon began to shake with terror and shock. The wretch panicked and ran away with the precious metalwork. There were many other heirlooms heaped inside the earth house because long ago, with deliberate care, somebody now forgotten had buried the riches of a high-born race in this ancient cache. Death had come and taken them all in times gone by, and the only one left to tell their tale, the last of their line, could look forward to nothing but the same fate for himself. He foresaw that his joy in the treasure would be brief. So, this poor desperate slave, 50 years into Beowulf's reign, because of the wretchedness of a master, wanders into a cave and discovers a hoard of wealth that's being guarded by a greedy, rageful, sleeping dragon. But before we actually meet the dragon, the poet takes us on a digression. (laughs) He wants us to know where the gold came from. It had been sitting there for 300 years doing nothing. Now, I would have just assumed, had the poet not told me, that the dragon was responsible maybe for collecting it over the centuries. But that's not how it went down. It came from a single source. It belonged to a people from long ago, a people that were ruined by war. So this omniscient poet jumps back to the past and quotes the lone survivor of the people whose treasure will be the death of Beowulf. Let's read the lone survivor's final words before he dies to leave his wealth to be discovered by a dragon. His words were few. Now earth hold what earls once held and heroes can no more. It was mine from you first by honorable men. My own people have been ruined in war. One by one they went down to death and looked their last on sweet life in the hall. I am left with nobody to bear a sword or burnish plated goblets. Put a sheen on the cup. The companies have departed. The hard helmet hasped with gold will be stripped of its hoops. And the helmet shiner, who should polish the metal of the war mask, sleeps. The coat of mail that came through all fights... Through shield collapse and cut of sword, decays with the warrior. Nor may webbed mail range far and wide on the warlord's back beside his mustered troops. No trembling harp, no tuned timber, no tumbling hawk swerving through the hall, no swift horse pawing the courtyard. Pillage and slaughter have emptied the earth of entire peoples. And so he mourned as he moved about the world, deserted and alone, lamenting his unhappiness day and night until death's flood brimmed up in his heart. So basically, the poet reveals that the dragon's gold is a, a collection of wealth generated by um, you know, the violence of men, right? Yes, pillage and slaughter. There you go. Uh, I also want to point out that if you do the math, although this is you know, a rough estimate, 300 years brings us back to the beginning of the story. I mean, we started with a funeral of a warrior who had reigned in uh, you know, warred uh, well, of course, but we don't know if this particular set of treasure was from the fighting with that king or but we can estimate that it you know it came from that same time period historically or you know just made a circle huh well we're getting ready to close the circle beowulf must fight this dragon you know the dragon is out scorching the land working himself up looking with what they call pent up fury for this cup a cup that hasn't been used in 300 years He, and I quote, began to belch out flames and burn bright homesteads. There was a hot glow that scared everyone, for the vile sky winger would leave nothing alive in his wake. 
I mean, even Beowulf's home is destroyed. The poet tells us that Beowulf decides to face the dragon, but the Beowulf, Beowulf poet also tells us, and I want to quote him again, he was destined to face the end of his days in this mortal world, as was the dragon, for all his long leasehold on the treasure. I would like to say that I think Skywinger is an excellent pet name. <laughs> you should remember that. That is a good point. Name your goldfish Skywinger. Oh. Um, you know, so you, you're saying that this poet isn't really much on suspense. I mean, he's telling us before the action even starts that uh, both the dragon and Beowulf are going to die. True. I mean, we're going to be told no less than four times that Beowulf is going to die before he actually does die. That goes beyond spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt. Beowulf does not survive this. Weird, if you want to remember that word, will have his final say in the encounter. And as Beowulf goes to meet the dragon, he will take with him fighters in helmets, those symbols of their warring civilization. I would rather not use a weapon if I knew another way to grapple with the dragon and make good my boast as I did against Grindel in days gone by, but I shall be meeting molten venom in the fire he breathes. So I go forth in mail, shirt, and shield. Beowulf was talking. Right. Well, you know, the monsters have gotten worse over the course of the story, and uh, Beowulf fights Grindel inside Herod, and he wins with his bare hands, and when he fights Grindel's mother, he descends below the water in Grindel's mirror, and he almost dies. And yet we have found a worse setting for a fight. Uh, worse know, than Hades. Yes. Uh, here he must enter into fire, and not just plain fire, but venomous fire, poisonous fire. You know, the kind of reminds me of World War One and trench warfare. Yeah, I don't know that the Beowulf poet had in that in mind, but yeah, it kind of does. You know, I was also thinking it reminds me of all those apocalyptic movies. I mean... Really, it's no wonder that the Thanes run, which they do. You know, Beowulf asks them to stay on the barrow. He says this, and I'll keep quoting him, safe in your armor to see which one of us is better in the end at bearing wounds in a deadly fray. This fight is not yours, nor is it up to any man except me to measure his strength against the monster or to prove his worth. So he never asks them to go, but he picks, you know, Thanes, Thanes are warring warriors, brave by definition. He tells them to wait for them, and he gives a parting speech where he recalls several other wars. Likely they already knew the stories. I don't know. Anyway, off he goes to meet the dragon at the mouth of the barrow, but immediately things are problematic. His sword fails to cut through the dragon's scales, and he's scorched by the flames, but... He stands his ground and prepares for the second rush of the dragon. Before we find out, though, about what's the outcome of this second uh, encounter, the poet shifts from, I mean, here you are reading about this fight between Beowulf and the ja dragon, and the poet shifts our attention to look at all these other companions that are fleeing. One of the things, Wiglaf, appears to run maybe for a while but then he regrets running and he returns and scolds the other things for being so cowardly Wiglaf is young but the poet tells us that his father was a brave warrior and Beowulf respected him and once again we have a digression <laughs> uh, you know this is not a straightforward telling of the story which could be considered frustrating I mean we're smack in the middle of a dragon fight and of course, if you think about it, uh, there's really no reason to rush to the last encounters with a dragon because, you know what? We already know Beowulf is going to die. <laughs> True, and he doesn't want to go down without a few more speeches. 
I mean, Beowulf is an eloquent king. I mean, his speech is as impressive as his fighting, which is interesting because when we think of, this is a digression, of other Greek heroes, they don't do that, like Achilles. But anyway, Wiglaf is a hero in the vein of the eloquent kind, and he speaks too, but he also fights bravely. Then the bane of that people, the fire-breathing dragon, was mad to attack for a third time. When a chance came, he caught the heroine a rush of flame and clamped sharp fangs into his neck. Beowulf's body ran wet with his lifeblood. It came welling out. Next thing they say, the noble son of Woston saw the king in danger at his side and displayed his inborn bravery and strength. He left the head alone, but his fighting hand was burned when he came to his kinsman's aid. He lunged at the enemy lower down so that his decorated sword sank into its belly and the flames grew weaker. Once again, the king gathered his strength and drew a stabbing knife he carried on his belt, sharpened for battle. He stuck it deep into the dragon's flank. Beowulf dealt it a deadly wound. They had killed the enemy. Courage quelled his life. That pair of kinsmen, partners in nobility, had destroyed the foe. So every man should act, be at hand when needed. But now, for the king, this would be the last of his many labors and triumphs in the world. You know, this young guy is in his first fight, and here he is, enveloped in fire, venomous fire, facing a dragon. And the poet tells us that his own shield is burned, so he has to take cover behind Beowulf's shield when Beowulf is wounded, even though Wiglaf is also wounded, he strikes down the dragon. He doesn't kill him, but he strikes him, and that sets Beowulf up for the fatal blow uh, that he gave with his knife. And of course, Beowulf leaves the world with one more speech. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now is the time when I would have wanted to bestow this armor on my own son, had it been my fortune to have fathered an heir and live on in his flesh, for fifty years I ruled this nation. No king or any neighboring clan would dare face me with troops. None had the power to intimidate me. I took what came, cared for, and stood by things in my keeping. Never fomented quarrels, never swore to a lie. All this consoles me, doomed as I am, and sickening for death. Because of my right ways, the ruler of mankind need never blame me when the breath leaves my body for murder of kinsmen. Go now quickly, dearest Wiglaf, under the gray stone where the dragon is laid out, lost to his treasure. Hurry to feast your eyes on the hoard. Away you go. I want to examine that ancient gold. Gaze my fill on those garnered jewels. My going will be easier for having seen the treasure. A less troubled letting go of the life and lordship I have long maintained. You know, Beowulf reflects again on his years as a king. I mean, he's been fighting the whole time. There's no peace in this society, but he's kept it together for the most part. And he's consoling himself in death with the idea that at least he's leaving a lot of treasure for the next generation. He will leave this earth. A ring giver. Well, however, uh, the reader will find out not too long after this speech that this won't happen. <laughs> um, the gold is cursed. It'll be buried with Beowulf. And not only that, uh, we learn that Wiglaf's speeches, that uh, word will get out about the cowardice of the things. And as a result, the Swedes are going to come for the Geats. And so, in other words, um, all is lost. I mean, nothing that Beowulf fought for here at the end will bear out. 
Which is so strange. I mean, why would the poet do that? I mean, why not make it a happily ever ending story? But it isn't. Beowulf is a tribute to death. It's a tribute to fatalism. I mean, is this, you know, you might think, well, this is a Christian commenting on the futility of a society that he considers to be pagan. Uh, But that doesn't quite explain it, because if the poet's condemning a previous way of life, why would you make Beowulf great at all? You know, um, historically thinking, um, at the time the poet is writing, England is transitioning away from the kind of tribal warfare that's prevalent in this text. Um, And this commitment to building a more peaceful society was not an easy transition. I mean, uh, in around the 10th century, um, oaths began to be taken by men, starting at age 12, to uphold the peace. And the term, uh, the king's peace, emerged, making it the king's prerogative uh, to preserve peace amongst his people. And in fact, in the king's coronation oath, starting in the 10th century, the king bound himself by this threefold promise to preserve peace and protect the church and to maintain good laws and abolish bad ones and to dispense justice to all. And you know, so as the poet looks back at an ancient past, which is exactly how he described the setting of Beowulf, the poet would have had this perspective shift. Um, the society of the poet is not the society of the story. Uh, the poet values the role of the king as one of peacemaker, not the ring giver. Um, you know, so that's one idea, kind of like this Beowulf guy is great, but his um, death and ensuing violence reminds us that this way of life is not a good way to live, even for the most noble. I mean, this is a poem about death from beginning to end, and much of that death is violent death. Well, I can agree with that, because here at the ending, you know, chaos is encroaching. I mean, first the dragon tries to destroy this world, but it is not the dragon that succeeds in destroying the world. There is another theme. Here at the end, we're reminded that the dragon's horde, by the way, was quite spectacular. Wall hangings that were a wonder to behold, glittering gold spread across the ground, the old dawn-scorching serpent's den, packed with goblets and vessels from the past, tarnished and corroding, rusty helmets all eaten away, armbands everywhere, artfully wrought, how easily treasure buried in the ground, gold hidden, however skillfully can escape from any man." And he saw, too, a standard entirely of gold hanging high over the hoard, a masterpiece of filigree. It glowed with light so he could make out the ground at his feet and inspect the valuables. You know, it's quite the haul, and Wiglaf takes at least some of it back to Beowulf so he can see it before he dies. So he came to the place, carrying a treasure, and found his lord bleeding profusely, his life at an end. Again, he began to swab his body. The beginnings of an utterance broke out from the king's breastcage. The old lord gazed sadly at the gold. So, you know, Beowulf looks at it and he understands, you know, what it cost him. He slayed the dragon. He won the treasure. But now he will only look at it. Well, the treasure had been won and bought and paid for by Beowulf's death. Well, and this isn't lost on Wiglaf. I mean, he rebukes the thanes when they come back. The battle dodgers abandoned the wood, the ones who had let down their lord earlier, the tail turners, ten of them together. When he needed them most, they had made off. 
Now they were ashamed and came behind shields in their battle outfits to where the old man lay. They watched Wiglaf sitting, worn out, a comrade shoulder to shoulder with his lord, trying in vain to bring him around with water. Much as he wanted to, there was no way he could preserve his lord's life on earth or alter in the least the Almighty's will. What God judged right would rule what happened to every man as it does to this day. The poet calls Wiglaf's rebuke a stern rebuke. These men had been cowards. They had betrayed their leader, a king who had given them gifts, weapons, both offensive and defensive. They'd been guests in his meat hall, and Wiglaf reminds them that there's a cost to cowardice. Every one of them will be dispossessed of their lands, their possessions, but more importantly, their honor. He says this, War is looming over our nation. The Franks have been after them since Hygelac's day. The Merovingian king is an enemy. The Swedes are enemies. In fact, he says this, quote, So this bad blood between us and the Swedes, this vicious feud, I am convinced, is bound to revive. They will cross our borders and attack in force when they find out that Beowulf is dead. Wiglaf says, It's so bad, they have to hurry up and launch and burn Beowulf's body with his gold before it's too late. And so that's what they do. They toss the dragon, which you'd think would be a bigger deal, but they kind of make it sound like it's easy. They build a pyre. They hang helmets and shields and armors all around it. They build a marker as a memorial on a mound that the sailors can see from far away. They bury the jewels with Beowulf's assage inside, and they cry, they wail, they chant properly, acknowledging Beowulf's death. But then the final words of the poem are these. So the Geat people, his hearth companions, sorrowed for the Lord who had been laid low. They said that of all kings upon the earth, he was the man most gracious and fair-minded, kindest to his people, and keenest to win fame. You know, Christy, it's kind of a puzzling ending. Uh, we know they are a doomed people, and also the poet doesn't say that Beowulf was the greatest of all kings. Uh, he said they said his people said that, and, you know, the the poet ends the poem kind of distancing himself from Beowulf's greatness, and it makes me wonder if um, if we aren't supposed to think that he's as great as they think he is. Well, it's a puzzle. You know, and on that note, I want to bring in the ideas of the poet who translated it, and that would be Nobel Prize winning Seamus Haney. I mean, Haney was an Irishman, and he was raised in Derry during the height of the violence between the British and the Irish. So just like Beowulf, he was very familiar with violence. Haney's speech, the one he gave when he received his Nobel Prize for Literature, talks about this. He addresses how his upcoming and that environment informed his writing as a whole. And I want to consider his understanding as we think about this ending, because Haney loved Beowulf. You might think living around violence would make you reverse, you know, you wouldn't like a text that's so violent, but Haney speaks about that. He believed imaginative literature should not simply be read as a function of oppressive discourse. Those are his words, meaning It shouldn't be about the conflicts between people, one people oppressing another people and just always looking at like that. But instead, he said that imaginative discourse is what survives violence. That's an interesting alternate understanding of the written word. He says this, listen to the poetry. 
It's a legacy of a people. It's not about how they fought. But he said a legacy of a people is how they wrote. The world consists of so many transient things. I mean, everything in the poem was transient. Power is transient. Violence is transient. Possessions are transient. The great edifices of the world, they're transient. Beowulf tells us the Herat would be destroyed before he even tells us how great it was when it was built. If Beowulf says anything, it talks about this, how transient, how circular, I think was the word you used. It all is, with one exception. Memory is not transient. The story is not transient. That's the fame. You know, I guess you could say that Beowulf did get his fame. We still read about him, and we should read about him. The legacy is the memory. Haney wrote this, quote, Only the very stupid or the very deprived can any longer help knowing that the documents of civilization have been written in blood and tears, blood and tears no less real for being very remote. You know, of course, who better than a witness to blood and tears would know the truth in that comment? Exactly. And and who better to remind us that especially in suffering, there are those who push back on the chaos. There are those who protect us from the eventual shadow and inspire us to reach past selfish materialism, greedy lust for vengeful violence, personal envy, into a story of human nobility, the story of men and women who give rings, who fight monsters from without, but also fight the monsters from within, and that we too should join the story. And perhaps if we do, our story will be remembered as well. And in that sense, I think we can say we should aspire to be a Beowulf. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, I do have to say, honestly, uh, having worked through this book, I understand it much better than I ever did before. And how many people have we encountered that said they hated Beowulf because they couldn't understand it? Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I, think, I think a great roadmap has been properly laid out for understanding the story. Uh, thank you all for being with us and uh, persevering to the end of Beowulf. Uh, we'd like to keep in touch with you. Follow us on our uh, social media platforms. You know what they are, Instagram, Facebook, the whole world world out there of stuff check out our website how to love we keep all types of up-to-date information there on the podcast and you know you can get yourself a t-shirt once again thanks for being with us peace out peace out